Every August when I come back from my July break, I try to preach a sermon that encapsulates, uh, I guess what you could say, uh, what God stirred and did in me during my time off. Uh, typically, uh, typically in July, I'm afforded days of rest and contemplation, some extended time of scripture, pray, scripture uh, prayer, journaling, all these disciplines. Uh, well, um, I'm coming back this year to tell you I've got none of that for you. Uh, this, was the, this was the summer for the kids. Abby and I wanted this to be uh, a trip that we planned uh, for their enjoyment. And um, so not coming back with much uh, adult contemplation, but recovering from a lot of child uh, stimulation. And, um, and so we did the Gatlinburg thing, which I know Mark loves, but ugh, um, it was overwhelming. Um, we did the beach, and then the whole thing culminated with a surprise. We're going to Disney World in July when everyone else goes to Disney World, and it's as hot as the surface of the sun. Uh, so yeah, many of you very graciously and I appreciate have asked me if I feel rested and renewed. The answer is no. Uh, but it was fun. It, was, it, it, it really was. It was. It's one of my favorite uh, vacations we've taken. Not necessarily because I got to do what I like to do, but because, um, and parents know this dynamic, because I found so much uh, delight in their delight. And it, was, and it was that delight in them that did lead me to one uh, theme, one repeated contemplation in particular um, over our time together, uh, which is how much delight God must find in his children. It, honestly, it was good for me to uh, break from the seriousness of my calling and just recover the childlike nature of life in general and the Christian faith in particular. You know, when you pause and watch children, you, you learn a lot. Um, that's, not, that's, not, that's not a hallmark sentimentality. That, that's kingdom of God teaching. So I found myself, as I spent extended time more than usual with my children, engaging with them more than usual, watching them, um, observing, listening to them, what I found is myself learning from them. It was they that were discipling me. Their little lives, they were, that was my devotional exercise, I guess you could say, for the month. And my mind kept coming back to the words of the passage that I read this morning, which affirms those observations, where Jesus commends to us, literally commends to us, the discipleship of children. And so I suppose that's what the Lord had for me, what I needed uh, this, this summer and what I want to convey to you this morning. Hopefully you need it as well. That strange call of the kingdom of God that we are actually supposed to learn from the littlest among us. I want to do it this morning with two simple points. We're going to look at children as the model of the kingdom of God and then children as the demand of the kingdom of God. The first point will be a little bit uh, longer than the second. Here, let's, let's start with the model of the kingdom in verse 13. They were bringing children to him that he might touch them. And the disciples 
rebuked them. Now, that might seem callous to you by the disciples, but it's, it's very culturally appropriate. It's, it's important to understand that within their culture, uh, the attitude towards children was simple. Essentially, just stay out of the way until you're a teenager and you can contribute to something. Um, and here are these parents daring to interrupt Jesus in this important adult conversation with their children. So naturally, the disciples do what was expected in that culture. They rebuked them. What are you doing? Interrupting Jesus with children. But Jesus sees this unfold, and it says that he is indignant. Very strong word in the Greek. One of the strongest words that, that, that you'll find in, uh, in the Gospel of Mark. He's furious. Why? Why is he so angry? Well, what we're going to see is that in Jesus' eyes... These children that they are hindering are the very ones they should be emulating. Verse 14, Jesus sees it, he's indignant, he said to them, let the children come to me, do not hinder them. Now listen to these words. For to such belongs the kingdom of God. That's remarkable when you stop to think about it. He's not just receiving them. He's not just saying, oh, come on. Children are precious. We welcome them in the kingdom. No, no, he's saying the kingdom belongs to them. They are the rulers. They are the role models. They are the heroes of the kingdom of God. Apparently, Jesus sees something in children that gets to the very heart of his kingdom that he came to establish. Now, we know... That can't be their innocence, which you'd be tempted to interpret this passage this way. People are bad, children are innocent. We know that cannot be the case. Spend a few minutes with children, you will discover that is not the case. Uh, The same sinful proclivities, selfishness, jealousy, anger, greed, these are alive and well in our children as they are in us. No, instead, it isn't their innocence, but their awareness. An awareness of things that we, seasoned, mature, veterans of this fallen world, tend to forget. What are these kingdom realities that children get and we tend to miss? Well, there we could spend a whole sermon series on because there's so many ways you could run with that implication. But I'm going to give us three that were particularly on my heart the past few weeks. Three ways I think my children have a better grasp on the kingdom of God than I. Let me tell you what they are up front and then we'll go through each of them. Childlike faith, childlike joy, and childlike dependence. So the first is childlike faith. There really is something to the magic of Disney. I have long considered myself a Disney cynic, but I have, drunk, I, I have drank the Kool-Aid. I'm all in on Disney. It's magical. And, and what it is, it is, it, 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 it is as if you step into a whole nother world that invites you to suspend disbelief and experience, if just for a day, a world of beauty and glory where, where superheroes and princesses reign, where good triumphs over evil, where dreams really do come true, and ultimately, where every story does end happily ever after. 
But of course, we know none of that is ultimately true. I mean, we're mature adults here, right? It's fun to play, pretend. It's fun to go on vacation and play, pretend. But Disney is not reality. Well, don't tell that to a child. I found myself watching, specifically our youngest, Henry, who's two. I found myself watching and wondering, what would it, what would it be like to believe, truly believe, that was Mickey Mouse? What would it be like to truly believe you're witnessing a Jedi defeat Darth Vader? To, to look at this castle and actually believe that prince, or him, princes live there. That those fireworks actually were magic in the sky. Well, what if I told you that childlike belief in one way is a form of sanity? That children's belief in fairy tales is more rational than the hard dogma of secular unbelief. This is the entire premise of Tolkien's essay on fairy tales. He says, his contention is this, that fairy tales are windows into a greater reality that adults have come to reject. That the myths we tell are both untrue and true. Of course untrue because they're figments of the human, human imagination, but true because the human imagination is on to something. What if we go to Disney World not to escape reality, but to get in touch with a much greater reality that's out there? That all these fictitious stories resonate so deeply because they are signposts to a factual story. That we do, in fact, live within a greater story written by a divine author, telling of a true battle of good and evil with a hero who triumphs in a world that will indeed live happily ever after. This is what I envy in children. They are untouched by the skepticism, doubt, and all-out unbelief that so many adults succumb to. If you can believe in Peter Pan, then of course God is perfectly reasonable. To which the skeptic, I understand, the cynic would say, well, yeah, exactly, my point. (laughs) Belief in God is as rational as Peter Pan. That's what C.S. Lewis told Tolkien when they were having their conversations before his conversion. He said, this is all great, but religion is nothing more than fairy tales for adults. To which Tolkien brilliantly said to Lewis, which was a moment of clarity for him that led to his conversion, except when it comes to Jesus. In Jesus, we find something unique. The myth comes to life. He is God entering his own story to reveal himself and rising from the dead to prove himself. And it was this, the uniqueness of Jesus and his claims that convinced Lewis that stories, and of course Lewis was a story lover, that stories aren't simply untrue. They are pointing pointing to the one truth that deep down we all know to be true, which is why we tell stories. But do you know who doesn't need all that fancy reasoning and philosophizing? Our children. Don't you just, don't you envy their faith? Don't you want to believe with the unvarnished conviction of a child? Well, Jesus thinks you should. In contrast to the disciples, 
throughout the gospel of Mark and his repeated refrain, Oh ye of little faith, why can't you just believe? Miracle upon miracle and you still don't believe. In contrast, he holds up children and their childlike faith as the model of the kingdom of God. Childlike faith. Next lesson I learned, childlike joy. I have an assignment for everyone. Many of you have already seen it, but if not, go to my Facebook page. Um, if, if we're not Facebook friends, I would love to be friends. You can, you can ask me. I'll accept. Go to my Facebook page and watch the video I posted of Henry meeting Mickey Mouse for the first time. Pure, unadulterated, uninhibited joy. It was... It was one of those character dinners that cost more than a mortgage payment. <laughs> and, uh, and Henry has on his Mickey shirt and Mickey ears. He can't eat. He's too excited. And Mickey's making his way table to table. The anticipation is building. And he, when, he's, when he's one table away, Henry just starts screaming in this high-pitched squeal that we didn't even know he possessed. Mickey's coming! Mickey's coming! And then it happened. Mickey comes over, touches his nose to Henry's face, and Henry comes undone with laughter. Of all things, of course, it was laughter, right? Just that childlike belly laughter. And then he falls into Mickey's arms, Mickey's arms with a huge hug. Brothers and sisters, that's not a small thing. A child overflowing with joy and laughter is how you were made to live. Is how you were made to exist. John Piper is so right on this one. The Bible could not be more clear. You were made for joy. But as we grow up within this brutal, fallen, sin-sick world, we are taught to become what? Joy skeptics, right? Oh, how cynical we become about joy. We lose what we once had in childhood and believe that misery, not joy, is the theme of this story and the end of this story. But again, what if our children are on to something? What if they're telling us the truer story? I believe they are. I believe Henry's joy in Mickey is not a precious moment to behold on Facebook, but a discipling moment to emulate. You are made to be happy. Novel concept, isn't it? You're supposed to be happy. You are created to be happy. In your deepest design as an image bearer of God, you were made for happiness. But happiness in something that makes you happy. You see, childlike joy is circumstantial. Believe it or not, Henry doesn't live perpetually joyful. He, he did not wake up, come to church this morning like he did wake up going to Disney. Disney World encountering Mickey Mouse, he is overcome by joy. And when you look at the Bible's teaching on joy, it does not deny its circumstantial nature. Something happens that makes you happy. Just like Disney World is a circumstance that makes a child happy. But the Bible's contention is thus. 
There is a joyful circumstance that transcends all circumstances, and that circumstance is God. Or to put it more specifically, the circumstance of having Jesus overwhelms and overcomes any and all other circumstances. Maybe even more specifically, the circumstance that Jesus is happy with you makes you happy in any and all circumstance. You're made to be happy. You're supposed to be happy. You'll believe that when you believe Jesus is happy with you. You see, we intuit naturally that we were made to be happy and happiness comes through circumstances. Here's the mistake we make, people. It's this. We turn to control and we say, if we can get our circumstances just right, we'll be happy. It is this perpetual addiction to control quest for a Disney World circumstance. The point of the kingdom of God is that this is a circumstance of joy that transcends any and all earthly circumstances. When Jesus speaks of himself to the disciples, he's very honest in this chapter, in, in, in John, in the upper room discourse that we, that we were in. He's very happy, he's very honest with the brutality of the world. In this world you will have trouble, they're going to hate you, they hated me, all that stuff. But then he says that he is a joy that cannot be taken from you. Kingdom of God logic is this. If you have Jesus and nothing else, you are happy. If you have the entire world and not Jesus, you will be miserable. So when you observe their childlike joy, view it not as something naive that they are soon to grow out of, but as something noble to aspire to, something that is yours waiting for your indulgence. A joy in Jesus that is greater than any and all circumstances. Childlike faith, childlike joy, okay. Childlike dependency. I don't know if you've heard, but Disney World tends to be pretty crowded. And there were these brief um, intermittent moments throughout our time where that childlike joy would immediately turn to childlike fear. And it took place when, for a brief moment, Henry felt like he had lost us. He never lost us. We're responsible parents. We didn't let our two-year-old run around Disney. We were always within a feet, few feet of him. But if for some reason we were just steps behind and he lost sight of us, or a few steps in front and he felt like he couldn't quite catch up to us, there would be this moment where you would see the desperation overtake him and sometimes even cry out, Daddy, don't leave me. There is a helplessness about a child that they intuitively understand an intimate knowledge that without a caregiver they are utterly helpless to care for themselves and and so I would watch these episodes of a of my child or we even saw one child who who had lost his parent was freaking out I would watch these episodes and I would think to myself am I really any different than that child in the grand scheme of things are you really any different do you That is to say, do you ever grow out of childlike dependence? Brothers and sisters, do not be fooled by the veneer of your own maturity. More than anything, I believe this is what Jesus is teaching in our passage. I say that because of the placement of the story. When you look at the flow of Mark 10, 
This is sandwiched between two encounters, one with the Pharisees, the other with the rich young ruler. These are the most prominent, powerful, successful, gifted, uh, self-sufficient, self-reliant, self-righteous folks of the day. And then standing in between is this lovely four-verse interlude, almost out of nowhere in the story, where Jesus identifies helpless children as the rulers of his kingdom. And the message is so obvious. These children are their rebuke. The Pharisees and their proud self-righteousness, they need to learn from these children. The rich, young, powerful man with the world at his fingertips, he needs to learn from these children. They are their rebuke and they are our rebuke. And not just rebuke. Revelation. Revelation, meaning they are showing us, they are mirroring to us our truest estate. Again, do not be fooled by the accumulation of power and money and accomplishments and religion and whatever else you want to place on your resume of maturity. Don't let it fool you. Instead, admit that we are at all times as helpless as a child lost at Disney. Ultimately, this is the call of the kingdom of God. There is no room, and I say that intentionally, literally, no room in the kingdom for those who believe they have no need for the king. But to the helpless and to the weary and the desperate and the destitute, the shameful, the sinful, the mournful, the ones willing to own their complete desperation, the kingdom of God opens wide her arms, inviting you to discover the king's provision. Childlike faith, childlike joy, childlike dependence, these are what we are to learn from our children to whom belongs the kingdom. And when I say learn, I say that with a sense of urgency and seriousness. Because Jesus is serious about it. This brings me to my final point. We've seen the model of the kingdom. Now let's look at the demand of the kingdom. Things get really serious in verse 15. He says, Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And with those words, Jesus stares us down and says, I'm serious about this children thing. I mean it. This is not some endearing illustration to make a point. He really means this. If you don't approach the kingdom of God like a child, you will miss the kingdom of God. Or to put it positively, the only way to enter the kingdom of God is like a child. So what does that mean for us? Well, it's good news and bad news. Let's start with the bad news so that we can end with the good news. Here's the bad news. What this means is that you are going to have to renounce everything that comes natural to you, and that's not easy. Do you know what Christian salvation and Christian sanctification is? The undoing of worldly maturity. The world trains us to be cynics. But like I said, we must be a people of faith. The world trains us in the ways of despondency. But like I said... Children show us we must be a people of joy. 
The world trains us to be independent and strong. But like I said, we must be a people of childlike dependence. And if I had time, I could extrapolate dozens of other childlike examples of how the kingdom demands we unlearn what we have learned from our sinful nature and this fallen world. We've got to unlearn all of that and recapture what children intuitively understand. Simply put, the kingdom of God demands we reject and forsake what every kingdom of this world demands we embrace and emulate. And that's not easy. It is a lifelong journey of deconstruction to become like a child. It's hard. But here's the good news. Would you have preferred him to choose someone else Someone else to be the demand of the kingdom. Meaning, what if he would have said, let the Pharisees come to me, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Could you imagine? Could you imagine having to emulate their rigid morality and religious zeal to enter the kingdom of God? What if he said, let this rich young ruler come to me, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Could you imagine the pressure become powerful and wealthy and successful to enter the kingdom of God? What if he said, let the scribes come to me, for to such belongs the kingdom of God? Could you imagine the pressure to learn and academics and your intelligence and all of these things to, be, to enter the kingdom of God? What if he said, let the successful come to me? Could you imagine the the, the pressure to succeed in life in order to get to the kingdom of God? Could you imagine if he said, let the wealthy, the powerful, the popular, successful, whatever you want to name, come to me for such belongs the kingdom of God. This would be the worst news he could say. Don't you see? Don't you see how gracious it is that he holds up a child as our demand? And if you're, you know, if you're considering Jesus and you're, 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 you're sick and tired of the world as it is and, 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 and you hear something compelling about the idea of this kingdom of God, this new world, this new way of being, isn't it good news that I'm telling you right now that unlike any other religion where I would have to stand up and say... You've got to do this, this, and this, and this, and this to get to, to here, to the kingdom. Or, or other philosophy that says you've, you're, going to have to, you're going to have to fix yourself and pull yourself up by the bootstraps and self-help stuff to get to the kingdom. Or any other um, organization that says you're going to have to meet these requirements and accreditation in order to get the kingdom. Isn't it refreshing to hear an invitation that says you've got to become like a child Isn't there part of you inside, as humbling as it may be, that wants to say, I can pull that off. I got to be a kid. I could do that. This is his love. Because in so doing, do you know what he's saying to us? Not strive to become something you aren't, but own who you truly are. And when you are there, Owning your childlike estate, you are ready for the kingdom of God. Specifically, you are ready to be received by the king of the kingdom.
Look at verse 16 as we close. And he took them in his arms, and he blessed them, laying his hands on them. I want to ask you a very, very simple question. Are you too old for that verse? Is this a a verse of the Bible that doesn't apply to you? Only to children? If this makes you uncomfortable, if this type of love and intimacy and care and touch from the Savior makes you uncomfortable, then you're not ready for the kingdom of God. I don't care how old you are. I don't care how successful you are. I don't care how popular you are. I don't care what measure of worldly maturity you have attained. Right now, deep down in your soul, there is a child desperate to be taken up in the strong arms of Jesus to have him lay his hands upon you and bless you. To have the Savior's delight not because of what you offer, not because of what you've achieved for no other reason than you, child, are his. That's what you want. And that's what Jesus wants. Do you know how I know the cost? Let me tell you the one thing my children didn't get. There was something they were completely oblivious to this past month, what it cost i got a credit card statement coming. It's going to hurt. But is the hurt worth it? A thousand times, yes, because ultimately their delight is my delight. And friends, when Jesus takes you into his arms and when he lays his hands upon you, the hands that will touch you will be scarred hands. Scars bearing witness to the cost of your delight, the payment of the debt that purchased you as his own. And when that day comes, I invite every single one of you to look at Jesus, he's not afraid of this question, to look at Jesus and ask him, was it worth it? Are you worth the greatest cost ever paid? And what you will hear without a moment's hesitation, is your Savior say a thousand times yes. Because you, child, you, child of God, are his delight. Let me pray. Lord, teach us to come now to your sacrament as empty, helpless, needy children that need to be fed by our God. You said, you said, if a, if a father knows how to give good gifts to his children, how much more does your heavenly father know how to give? And this, right now, is your greatest gift. May we receive it as children, and may we find in it our God who calls us his own. Bless communion, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.